it was a bit of a journey of um, kind of after I got married, I then got diagnosed with this um, raging autoimmune disease, which my husband and I then worked out, oh, it's got this shockingly terrifying rate of miscarriage and stillbirth and major deformities in the baby and significant risk to me as the pregnant person. And we started to go, this is really terrifying stuff. Like there were significantly adverse medical outcomes. And so we kind of felt, even though we wanted kids of our own, we kind of felt a bit backed into a corner by this whole new disease kind of news. And we felt like the risk was just too terrifying for us to even embark on that journey. We made the really difficult decision to remain childless, but we felt like it wasn't really a choice at that point. We felt like we really had been cornered by um, all the medical information I was receiving. Um, so it kind of felt like forced choice. So I coined this term childless by forced choice because sometimes even though it technically is a decision, we effectively feel like the decision has been taken out of our hands. Welcome to the Full Stop Podcast with Sarah Lawrence, Berenice Smith and me, Michael Hughes. If this is your first time here, our podcast delves into the many facets of what it means to be childless, as well as what is going on in the wider childless community. Our hope is that with all our special guests, we can help you craft your own narrative and what it means to be part of the childless community. We also aim to educate those who are not in our community so they can begin to understand and support those in their lives who may be facing a life without children. Now, there are many ways that people arrive within the childless community, and we are extremely privileged to have these three courageous and beautiful souls with us today. So it's over to you, Sarah. Welcome to this episode, everybody. We are here to talk about um, some of the lesser known reasons why people might be part of our community. So we all know the big ones, you know, the ones that we often talk about. But today we've invited Steph, Paolo and Charlie on to talk about their very different stories, um, but how they came to be in this community. And I think it's Jodie that talks about the, the many doors to which we all come into this community. And I think this episode is really going to illustrate that. It's Obviously, there'll be some shared experiences, but there'll also be some very different stories. So it may sound slightly different this episode because we're going to have to be very organised, which is most unlike us. So <laughs> we're gonna... <laughs> I hope you don't mind that. I, you know, I don't want to be that sort of militant or anything, but we want to get three voices across because we think that all of their stories are so interesting and so varied that they're going to appeal to lots of different people that are out there listening, uh, dear listener. So with that said, I am going to shut up and I'm going to invite each of you, if that's OK, to sort of share a story about how you came to be a member of our community. Who, who would like to go first? Is there anybody that would like to step up? <laughs> Steph, how about we come to you? OK. <laughs> I was waiting for someone else to stick their hand up. Um, first of all, thank you so much for having me, guys, on your podcast. Um, it's, uh, it's such a privilege to be part of this community and to be able to share like this. And I, I feel privileged to be able to share it with, um, with Paolo and Charlie today. So, so thank you so much. Um, look, I, I came across this community by speaking to other childless people and kind of hearing their stories and um, 
they began to share uh, resources with me that I had no idea existed. <laughs> I was just existing in a silo, you know, as we often do in our journeys. Um, and then people started talking about, oh, there's this amazing book or, oh, have you seen this person's website? Or have you? And then so I started researching and went, oh, my gosh, there's this whole global community. This is incredible. Um, so it was such a it was such an education for me. It was such an eye opener to realize that not only was I not the only one, even though I felt like I might have been, um, but that there was a, a an incredible sense of solidarity amongst other childless people, right? Like it was so exciting. It's like, oh, it's like, it's a whole thing. <laughs> There's this thing out there in the world about being childless. Um, and I was so relieved because, yeah, my story of childlessness is a bit different to even the, even within the minority of the childless community. Mine's like a sub minority um, because I never tried to conceive, um, did never explored my fertility, don't know if I'm infertile or not, never had a miscarriage or tried IVF. So I heard lots of those stories and kind of went, oh, do I even kind of fit in this group after all? Um, because I'm childless because of uh, a chronic illness, a medical condition. So it was kind of, it was a bit of a journey of um, kind of after I got married, I then got diagnosed with this um, raging autoimmune disease, which my husband and I then worked out, oh, it's got this shockingly terrifying rate of miscarriage and stillbirth and major deformities in the baby and significant risk to me as the pregnant person. And we started to go, this is really terrifying stuff. Like there were significantly adverse medical outcomes. And so we kind of felt, even though we wanted kids of our own, we kind of felt a bit backed into a corner by this whole new disease kind of news. And we felt like the risk was just too terrifying for us to even embark on that journey. We made the really difficult decision to remain childless, but we felt like it wasn't really a choice at that point. We felt like we really had been cornered by um, all the medical information I was receiving. Um, so it kind of felt like forced choice. So I coined this term childless by forced choice because sometimes even though it technically is a decision, we effectively feel like the decision has been taken out of our hands. By, by circumstances, perhaps by medical conditions or by other things. Um, so it was a bit of a complicated journey. It took us a while to get there. And even when we made the choice, we kind of revisited it a couple of times and went, oh, are we really, are we sure? <laughs> Do we want it? And then we go through the data again and the, the worst case scenarios and, and go, nah, it's still pretty terrifying. Let's, I'd rather not. Let's not do that. Um, so I'm still in this childless community, even though my reason for being childless is a little bit more hidden. You can't see my medical condition. You can't see the risks that it carries, um, but just as real as the invisible grief of childlessness. Wow. Thank you, Steph. <clears throat> I think so many people are going to resonate with your story about I've had to make a forced choice. So not, not a choice in essence, really, is it? So it is. Mm it's kind of backed into a corner that's a real mm. real image that thank you for sharing thank you okay i'm going to come back to that because that 
I've got a thought. Sorry, my brain is fizzing having heard your story. <laughs> Always does a this. thought. I like a that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Steph. Who would like to go next? Who would like to share their, their story next? I'll go next. Thank you, Paolo. Okay, so um, I joined the community because I've been involved in support groups since the year 2000 when I helped set up the my senior gravis Croydon branch and that was a few months after I was diagnosed with it. It's a rare autoimmune condition which causes paralysis of all of the voluntary muscles. So hands, feet, arms, legs, eyes, breathing, eating, talking, all those sorts of things are affected. That was diagnosed within a year of um, our decision to start to have children. Um, there were conversations with the doctors about safe treatments and unsafe treatments. So at that point, we were adamant that we were going to continue down the route of trying to have children. So I had to refuse the um, best course of treatment. So there was some you know, aggravation between me and the doctors about what to do. And it was agreed that we would try, um, if need be, a maximum of two IVF treatments. And if that failed, we would call it a day and I would start the treatment that they wanted me to. Now, my senior gravis is a life-threatening condition because it affects the breathing muscles. And so the first five years, I had suboptimal breathing. The first month I was diagnosed, I was in hospital with a crisis and I nearly died because my breathing got so poor. And they had a cot outside my bed ready to rush me to ICU and put me in an induced coma if my breathing went any lower. So it was a really hard time. So we, I was trying to get pregnant. I was dealing with work. I was off work for the six months when I was initially diagnosed. I went through the crisis. I had a thymectomy, which is open heart surgery, when they remove the glands from behind the heart, which is meant to help. I was on very high dose steroids. I was on steroids for 19 years, eventually. Anyway, so I was off work for six months, went back to work. Terrible situation, but anyway, you dealt with it as best you could. I had 13 emergency hospital admissions in the first two years. And at that point, I decided I wasn't going to count any more admissions. I was uh, sent home in a taxi twice because I collapsed at work. I'm really good at falling. That's a really useful life skill, how to fall and not hurt yourself. <laughs> anyway, so all this is going on. I'm trying to get pregnant. I'm trying to get the disease under control. I'm trying to cope with work. And of course, it's all too much and the body can't possibly deal with all of that. So we got to the stage where we went through IVF and it failed and the doctor called me in and said this is never going to work for you your eggs are just too poor you know basically that was it i did try and get IVF through the nhs but because i was 37 i was declined and at that point um i'm very ill the doctor told me this is not an option anymore so i was pretty much destroyed for about six months and um Two weeks after the conversation with the gynae doctor, I rang my neuro and said, right, okay, I will start the isocyprine. I will take the treatment that you want me to. And we started that. And I put sort of having children to the back of my mind then because I had no choice. 
uh, about, anyway, they weren't able to get my condition under control. Um, I just wasn't able to manage everything and neither were they. So we decided to sell up, leave London and move to Birmingham. And I, um, I've always had gynae problems. I've always had really bad periods, very painful. Uh, I went on the pill in my early 20s because of that. Anyway, so upshot was at one point I was in hospital. My blood, my red blood count was nine. I was receiving IVIGs for the, my senior. And they were like, well, we can't give you white blood cells and red blood cells because it just, we can't. And so it's kind of, okay, so we stopped. You know, I said, right, okay, we've got to deal with this. And the guy in the doctor said, right, okay, have a look. You've got really bad fibroids. They're enormous. Um, so I'd been bleeding really heavily. And um, I had an emergency hysterectomy at that point. And, that, and then I'm about uh, 40, am I 41? I've lost track. So anyway, so that's sort of my situation. And after that, I went on to methotrexate. And of course, you can't, you know, I've had the hysterectomy, I'm not going to get pregnant, I'm on another drug, I can't, you know, it's, it's just all over. So at that point, I knew um, that dream was gone. So I'd been involved, like I said, in the, my senior gravis association, and I was the forum administrator for some time, and I've been involved in support groups since. And that's one of the things that's been a key driver for me. That was why I joined the community. And last year, I realised there wasn't a support group for um childless women with chronic conditions so I set up a support group and we're just over 90 members now after about 10 months so that's um that's a bit of my history and it's much truncated and obviously you can imagine there's loads more behind it but that's me panic wow what a, what a, gosh, you've been through so much that's amazing and then to bring something positive out of all of that we're coming back to this. <laughs> yeah. Flipping wow. Yeah. I just, I, I can only know that I've been through IVF and to add on everything else, even honestly, that, that, and then to try and catch up somewhere along the line with how you feel as well and all the feelings. It's, it sounds like a real roller coaster. And then trying to sort of pause and, and catch up with life, <laughs> with your situation must be just incredibly difficult to do. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing and then bringing about something positive like a support group. Mm, incredible. Wowzers. Wowzers. Okay, thank you for sharing. As I say, we're going to come back. <laughs> Charlie, can I come to you lastly to introduce yourself? Yes, of course. And, um, you know, thank you so much. Uh, I echo um, Steph's comments uh, from the start of the podcast. Thank you so much for for in inviting me to to join um, to, to join this podcast and to you know, have the privilege to listen to the the other experiences that are being shared as well, and uh, it, they really are quite different. Having had the chance to listen to um, Steph and and Paolo before before me, mine is uh, a, a different story again. So, so I I found out I was infertile at uh, seventeen. Um, I was born with a condition called MRKH, which is Meyer Rokitansky Custer Hauser syndrome. Uh, where I'm born uh, with without a, a womb or with an underdeveloped womb um, and a, a shortened vagina, it can also affect other parts of the body. But in my case, it's 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 that element only. Um, but there are other effects to, to kidneys and bones and hearing that can happen in some cases as well. So I mean, I, I remember being being diagnosed at that age, and and of course 
that's that's often the first thing that many of us think about. You know, you're to- you're told at 17 that you don't have a a uterus, and the first thing is, oh my gosh, I can't get pregnant, and you know, what does this mean for the future? And suddenly, those very adult um, topics of of children and family um, become come to the forefront of your mind, and that makes it very very hard to to kind of process and and really grieve uh through that trauma when when you're so young yourself and so unprepared for uh for understanding what what that means um and and I think it it took a you know several years to to really kind of start to process that to think about what what other options were available and you know I, I echo the points raised they don't really feel like options I think Steph said the same it's you know there are there are different routes to or paths to, to parenthood if if that's a, a path you want to take but but at the time that they, they, they were the only options and I was very keen to to, to have children um but they they didn't really feel like much of a choice like they there was they weren't really things that I thought oh I, I really want to to pursue those um with with any kind of great great vigor and I think also coming to terms with my own infertility was something that really hit me later in life in in my 30s early 30s um where it suddenly became more like prominent to me where you know I'm, I'm getting that little bit older if I was going to explore some of these options then um but I also wasn't at the right place in my life to 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 do that in the way that I wanted to um and also not being able to carry my own child kind of brings about some other complications uh, limited access to to NHS funding to support some of these these processes for example um, and then you know, on top of all these things, then trying to to navigate just life in general, um, and yeah, it, it came a little bit bit too much. And and I I started advocating for for MRKH about about eight or nine years ago, um, and got involved with the charity MRKH Connect, which was founded in 2014. Um, and that's yeah, the aim is to connect those with MRKH together, and it was few through that community and through the types of resources that we were compiling that I found the childless community because it became very apparent by the time I got to my my mid-30s that this was very likely uh, you know the, the path to parenthood just just was unlikely to happen to, to me and I, so I was trying to to kind of find my place um in in the in the world and in the community and and within the the societal expectations as it were um, and I was finding that there were others in in the community that had those same feelings and those same thought processes, and that so much of the content in in our community, in the MRKH community, is very um, child focused because that is often the thought that that first comes to mind when you're thinking about you know uterus and or lack of and general infertility um, conditions. And I think it was it was a real realization for me that actually we needed to do more to be more inclusive to those in the community, including myself, which is, you know, it's just one of those things that just kind of glazed over a little bit that, that actually we needed to, to have more resources that spoke to those who, who either chose not to um, with MRKH or who had tried and, you know, endlessly and not been, not been successful. Um, and, and so that's where I, I came across the, the childless community and probably been, been involved in various different things for the last few years and and hopefully being able to to share and signpost others to to those resources as well. 
Wow, thank you. Thank you for sharing, Charlie. I'm really struck by how all three of you are sort of, I guess, had to go through your own journeys, albeit they, they, they probably on the surface sound very different, but I imagine it took a lot of internal strength to, to be able to cope with what you've all been through. And then that, that phrase that you said, Steph, childless by forced choice, it's almost like a little sub uh, heading, isn't it, that could cover so many situations within our community that many of us probably aren't even aware of. So, and then so to all, for all of you to give back, it must feel like it's part of your healing as well, in many ways. Definitely. What, yep, was, for sure. what, what was the turning point you think in, because obviously going from having to heal yourself to then healing and helping others, do, do any of you recognize that point at which it became a, a sort of a tipping point? You're like, right, I've got to go and help other people. I don't think it's so much a tipping point. What it was, when I was diagnosed, I thought, crikey, it's a rare condition and there are about 15,000 people in the UK who have it. So it's poorly diagnosed. The average diagnosis time is two years. And with any autoimmune condition, um, the drugs they give you are pretty horrendous. Um, it's, uh, you know, a sledgehammer to crack a nut. Right. and they destroy your bodies and nobody knows what's going to work and you try one drug and then the next drug and then the next drug until you find, you know, you're working through the lowest level of toxicity first to the most awful drugs and, you know, you take what you have to. So as soon as you're, as soon as I was diagnosed with that, I wanted to help people. I wanted to reach out to other people and I wanted to talk to people who were in the same boat as me. And so that is that. You're looking for that connection, that feeling. It's not just me. It's like, Wow, this is really rare. I'm, this is so unusual. Why, you know, how on earth has this happened? So you reach out immediately to the people. And so my first thought was, what can I do to help other people who are going through this? And that was why I immediately I joined the association. And there wasn't a branch in my local area. And they asked me to set that up. So I was the founding chair for that. And we set that up and we had about 12 members almost immediately. And that was in London, so obviously there's a lot more people there. So, and it was a very gradual learning that actually helping others is healing me. That mm. took time. I didn't recognize that straight away. I did it because I wanted to help and I wanted to support other people who were experiencing what I was experiencing, which frankly was extremely challenging on every single <laughs> level. And so, you know, and over the years I've realized they healed me far more than I healed them. And that what they gave back to me was a validation and a feeling that um, I have a purpose. I've spent most of my time at home over the last 20 years because I can't engage much. Uh, my physical ability is much limited. The um, treatments that I've had have had terrible effects on my body. I've had numerous surgeries that I have severe generalized arthritis. This is my second arthritis surgery. There will no doubt be many more. So, you know, it's um, this is how I can actually still engage with society and with people and still feel that my life has value and there is a contribution I can make. I'm not used to, you know, from being a very active, I was a finance manage, manager for Barclays Bank, I used to fly around Europe and this country, advising companies and auditing them and things like that. So for me to go from that to a position where I was, I was being fed pureed food. I couldn't move my arms. I couldn't even press the buzzer on the nurse's, um, you know, thing that they give you. Press this buzzer help. And 
I remember looking at the doctor and she looked at me and she knew I didn't even have the strength to do that. So mm-hmm. it's kind of when you go from being very active to not, then it's you need a, a sense of purpose and a reason to get up in the morning and to continue to face each day and to find joy in each day as well as part of that. Such a good point, Paolo. And uh, I mean, I, I found, I mean, I don't have any any physical um, characteristics with MRKH, but the what, what I was unprepared for was the psychological impact um, of you know, dealing with everything that comes with the with that at such a young age as well. And, and that that I think was the the hardest thing for me uh, in terms of you know, what comes next and how to find support. And obviously, you know, I, I, you know, I suspect we're all in the same boat when when we were you know, maybe diagnosed or in those those earlier days, the resources weren't the same as they are now. Um, I mean, I was I was diagnosed over you know, 22 years ago now. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a completely different world now than it was then. And and I, I found it, it took a couple of years, really, for, for me to find any um uh, any kind of specialist support for, for MRKH that there was a hospital in in London which had had diagnosed me and they ran support groups um <clears throat> but I and I I think I probably went to the first one about two years after I was diagnosed and and it was then that I realized that there were so many people who'd been through far worse diagnosis like journeys than I had I'd actually had a very smooth period of diagnosis from uh you know from going going to the doctors to say I didn't have a period to being referred to a gynecologist it was probably six or seven months I guess with with all the testing it was actually quite uh, quite quick um and I but I was from the southeast of England close to London there was you know probably that the location probably had a, a lot of advantage to that I and mean, there were some people with these horror stories of of years of diagnosis which mm-hmm. considering the, the, you know, there are not that many reasons why someone wouldn't start uh, their periods um, and the, the types of tests that, that you could do even back then would have been able to identify this quite easily. Um, it's much, much more common than than your condition as well, Paolo. It's uh, one in 5,000 uh, female births who have MRKH, but still. And I think that's what really drove home for me or why I wanted to, to give back to the community and um, do something. And, and exactly what that was I think was something that took a bit more time to answer your question Sarah but like being involved in that community and and really trying you know what could we do to improve the awareness of um of the general public of the medical community of the those with MRKH and their families so that they can understand more about what this means and 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 now now to be be able to be involved in in research projects where where universities and and other groups are actually looking into the psychological adjustment of these conditions, which is yeah you know, I, I guess really the it's it's that unseen part of any of these conditions when it comes to infertility, actually trying to to manage those feelings around grief and trauma. Um, and grief and trauma for something you never had but but there is a loss there and it's really difficult to explain that to people and so having that common um, uh, you know support network with people who understand that's that's been invaluable to to my journey as well I I completely agree with you. Yeah agreed I agree with so much of what you've both said Charlie and Paulo Um, the 
<laughs> the horrors of diagnosis um, and how long it takes and, and the tests they put you through to, you know, to, to determine or to eliminate this and that. Mine took um, eight years to get diagnosed, my autoimmune disease, um, and it's another rare one um, like yours, both of yours, which is called lupus. Mm -hmm. um, and a, a lot of people have heard of lupus, but I really don't know anyone who has it. So there's actually not a lot of support in Australia. There's a bit in the UK. The UK does lupus a lot better than what mm. Australia does at the moment. But I, I, I resonate with what you guys are saying about that journey to diagnosis. Um, they basically had to rule out every other disease on my plate. Um, and I spent time in hospital and they took all this blood out of me. I didn't even know I had that much blood, uh, but apparently, <laughs> apparently I do. Um, so um, I, I don't think I know anyone, I, just listening to your stories and reflecting on who I connected with around childlessness. I don't think I know anyone who's both childless and living with lupus. I have to say, like, I'm struggling to think of anyone <clears throat> who is in the same kind of sub minority <laughs> as me. But what I think there was a tipping point for me, though, in sharing my story. Um, it was that people were asking me to, um, to write a book, I, I'd written a, a book, a few years ago and um, and people were like, oh, that's great. And I'm a bit of a creative, so I express myself through words and through music. Don't ask me to draw. My drawing's terrible, but I, <laughs> I like other forms of artistic expression. So I'd written this book and people were coming up to me going, oh, what's your next book going to be on, Steph? And I'm like, well, I, I don't know. I just I wrote a book about surviving singledom, you know, and particularly in the church when everyone else seems to be married. So I was like, I'm kind of happy if that's a standalone book. And people were like, oh, you should write a book about marriage. I was like, oh, hell no. Like, seriously, I need to add another book to the plethora of marriage books about surviving marriage. I'm like, no, I think you've, you've come to the wrong girl for, for that. Anyway, a couple of people made the same suggestion. And I was like, no, 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 not going to do it. And then a friend of mine at church who was also married without children at that point um, said to me, you know, why don't you write a book about marriage? And I was like, I don't really think I need to add to the, the wealth of marriage books that's already out there. And she said, no, 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 Steph, I don't mean write about what it's like to be married. Can you write a book about what it's like to be married in the church and not have children? And I went, ooh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I could definitely write a book about that. So that was, I guess, the tipping point for me in terms of writing words that would hopefully reach out to others. And even that, that simple but powerful message of, hey, you're not the only one. It's not just you. You're not alone. Um, so I, I realized my story was niche. So I actually took it upon myself to interview a bunch of other childless people for that book. So I'm going, my story may not resonate with many people. Let's include some other stories about infertility and IVF and um, interviewed 14 wonderful people about their childlessness stories. But I think that's what, when you guys talk about um, what gives your life meaning, I think for me, that's being able to write and, and publish a book and, you know, or produce music and put songs out there. For me, that's, those words last forever. That music lasts forever. And to know that that stuff is going to outlive me, those words are going to be around long after I'm gone. Like that's a kind of legacy. 
And that's really meaningful to me that my words might continue to reach out and, and encourage and inspire other childless people long after I've shuffled off this mortal coil. Um, so, yeah, I think that's given me a lot of purpose um, left by the void of childlessness. Oh, I love that. So it, it almost feels like you've almost all found this purpose around giving back legacy, connecting others, bringing it together, recognising that actually maybe it's a small group, but it's a much needed voice that you need to sort of gather everybody in so that you're all together. I was wondering if I could go back to something you said, Steph, earlier. You mentioned um, talking about uh, it was something worse than the effect you were sort of saying, you know, about the childlessness um, around. I, I kind of came away with it sort of like, am I part of this community, the childless not by choice community, because it's childless by forced choice. Now, I, I obviously with the counselling, I work with a lot of people that are kind of one foot in, one foot out. I was wondering, could we explore that a little bit? Because I think there's quite a li- there's quite a number of people that think, am I part of this community? Am I, should I be part of it? Am I, I don't want to use the word worthy, but you know what I mean? Do I qualify? I was wondering yeah. if we could like, explore that. Would that be okay? Of course. I, I, I definitely resonate with that. Um, I, I definitely had that experience of wrestling with the the dilemma of, well, I'm childless and I I don't want to be childless. So it's childless, not child free. Um, But there's all these other people here who've been trying to conceive for a really long time and I didn't, that wasn't my story. So is my story, not not is it valid? I was going to say, is it valid? But I know that it's valid. Um, But it was more a question of belonging, I guess. Like, is this the place where I belong? And if not, well, where the heck do I <laughs> do I look for another tribe, you know, another community where I can belong? So, yeah, I, I, I guess I wrestled with the words and the language a bit. Words are really interesting to me. I'm really interested in language and nuance. And that's where I came up with the forced choice because I thought I asked some people in the childless community, do you think I'm like childless not by choice or do you think I'm childless by circumstance? And and someone messaged me at one point and said, oh, you're childless by circumstance because your medical condition is a circumstance. And I was like, you know, that's true. Like I went away and thought about it. I mulled it over and I went, they're absolutely right. Like it is a circumstance. At the same time, it lacks some of the the, the meaning for me, like a lot of people, when they say childless by circumstance, they're talking about not being in a relationship. You know, they haven't found the right partner. They're childless by singledom, um, which is its own cohort, you know, <laughs> and um, with its own challenges. And I thought, well, I, I don't really identify with that group either. So what about people like me who feel like, you know, they're facing just a really difficult decision, a really risky version of of childlessness where it might be actually too dangerous to even start trying um you know along with my lupus I I resonate with what others have shared about having other feminine issues you know I had endometriosis for a a very long time very painful um so there was that and there were other factors kind of piled on top of that where I was kind of going (laughs) it's not really yeah the choice is taken out of my hands but I technically do have a decision. I toed and froed on it is what I'm trying to say. I toed and froed 
for a long time. And that's when I went, let's, let's come up with something completely new then, because <laughs> I'm not finding anything that's really satisfying. So um, hence the forced choice. And I, I put it in my book and I, what I was saying about it was that this might resonate with others who also feel like they're in a difficult life situation where yes, they have a choice, but it's such a dangerous choice that it's, they're pretty much not willing to look at it. And I, I can think of people I know with um, significant mental distress um, or past trauma or perhaps disability, um, or they're, they're limited in terms of their mobility or their functionality who might also feel like, well, yes, I could be a parent, but the effort and the <laughs> psyching up it would take to get there and could I kind of follow through with it once it started and all those questions. I thought perhaps forced choice might be a better fit for people in those sorts of circumstances as well. I guess it's kind of also a benefit to people from the outside looking in, even within our community too. I'm thinking about what you said about language and how that matters and and I wonder sometimes whether perhaps we talk too much about the reasons, the obvious reasons, albeit painful ones, like failed adoption, IVF not working, because actually they're kind of ones that maybe unite us a little more, largely within the community that we're in. And by not having a phrase for all of the other reasons why we're here, we, we don't know the words. So actually what you're probably also doing, Steph, is empowering within the community by giving people phrases they can use that they feel are appropriate as well. It's the first time I've heard something, certainly in all of the time of World Childless Week and of doing the podcast and that, but I've heard a term that I think sums up so eloquently what other people are going through, that they could choose to use it if they wanted to. I think that's incredibly empowering. Thank you. I think um, language does matter. You're right. And it matters both inside and outside. As you're saying, it gives people who maybe haven't faced childlessness or they're not in that circumstance, um, a bit of a, like a code, <laughs> a bit of a, an understanding or a description of what it's like for us to be in, inside that circumstance. Yeah. So absolutely language, language matters for sure. And it protects your privacy a bit too, because I'm conscious that the three of you are sharing very private, personal stories. I'm very privileged and honoured to be listening to those, as I'm sure our listeners are as well. But also sometimes you may not want to say that, but actually you're implying something. And the more that phrase grows, then I think the more that we can do to to advocate for that phrase and say that actually this is a thing too. So you've got a, just a, a sense of it. This wasn't something I chose. It wasn't a situation I wanted to be in. So thank you. It's an incredibly brilliant phrase and very empowering, I'm sure, for everyone within our community too. Thank you. I'm glad. I hope it does help people. <laughs> sure it will. I just want to say that I, um, I'm, I'm gobsmacked again because I, I've been feeling the emotion well up listening to your stories and um, I just feel so privileged because I do recognise that I'm one man in a group of five women and um, I would not get the opportunity to have such a interesting and personal um, chat with, with people like this. So I really want to thank you for this, all three of you. You are certainly beautiful people in my book. I, I, I think about um, Charlie, the, I was, 
I can't think when it was, but it was a might have been last year. A, a good friend of mine reached out to me, and she had a um, a, a friend of hers. So we're all about the same age. Um, who has a daughter with MRKH, and her mother had absolutely no idea what to do. Um, so my friend reached out to me and says, "Can can you help?" I'm like. Yeah, okay. What is it? <laughs> so <laughs> I actually had to research what it was. Um, and then I was able to put them in touch with an Australian organization. So that was that was really, really great. But um I will certainly be forwarding this this episode on to a friend of my friend. Um because I because she's um so I guess this could start a conversation around uh, how she was dealing with it. And this, this daughter was extremely angry, mm. very, very angry to the point that her mother couldn't even bring the topic up. So she was looking for support to, to tr- somehow, you know, get behind that with her daughter and help her out. Was that something that you went through? Yeah, I, I'm actually not, I wasn't too angry myself, but it, it's it's certainly something we see quite a lot in in the community and through the through the charity. But I would I would say for, for like my personal experience was, I, I mean, I, I tried to block it out if I'm completely honest. So those first couple of years after diagnosis, and I think to be completely honest, back back then with it not being so with other information resources not being so accessible it was easier to hide away from some of the these things if you didn't want to know I, I couldn't just go and google it well, I guess we could google but there wasn't much information that was online at those times and certainly social media didn't didn't exist 20 20 plus years ago when 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 I was diagnosed so it was it was easier to kind of go into into myself a bit more so I would say it was less anger and more um bottling up those feelings um and it and it just became a topic we just didn't talk about at home um and it's been really interesting for me because my uh my mum joined the the board of the charity uh, so I, I run MRKH Connect and she I asked her if she would be interested um because she'd seen I'd been kind of advocating publicly for a few years um and and suddenly she has this connection with the community that she's never been involved in but that she has I feel like she's really found her her place in it as well so I'm really proud of her for what what she's um she's always been quite negative about how she reacted in those early years that she feels that she let me down and you know a lot of mothers take on so much pressure after a diagnosis that that it's somehow their fault something that they did in pregnancy that's led to this um and and it's not i mean the research has shown that that's that's not the case it's just one of those developmental um uh, processes it's quite complex and they're still trying to find out all of the causes but certainly there's nothing specific in a pregnancy that, that a, a person could do to cause it um so i think there was a lot of a lot of guilt there uh from from my mum's side um and and then that that but became I think quite difficult for her to to handle but then as I say we d- we didn't really talk about it until you know probably early 30 early mid 30s we never had a conversation about about it which is kind of ludicrous really I was going to all these support groups by myself they were they knew I was going I, I made my my own kind of friends at the at these groups and and then just you know took 
took the initiative because that's what I wanted to do. And and it was never a, a disrespect to, to my parents. It just it just became something we just didn't talk about. Um, but I speak to to plenty of of mums uh, now and and dads sometimes, but particularly mums who contact us and and yeah, seem similar to your friend, um, just don't know what to do. They don't know how to. What can they say? What can they do? How do they make it better? Um, and and unfortunately, there's no there's no easy answer, as I'm sure you imagine, Michael. It's uh, it's so it's it's so different for every person that you know every person deals with grief differently uh, and also you know, I mean some people can be really quite young when they are diagnosed and um, if if they have some of the other associated conditions for example with kidneys or maybe scoliosis or something like that that is diagnosed much younger the parent may know before the child does depending on the age um I mean most the majority would, would be diagnosed probably from 15, 16, 17 kind of age range, but but even still trying to navigate those kind of informative years with adult challenges almost becomes very, very tricky. And I mean, we we have built some resources on our on our page, on our, our website to, to try and support parents by sharing parents' experiences to help others uh, going through that. Um, and it's an area that we kind of continuously reviewing as to how we can how we can build more resources to to help um and it's it's a case unfortunately of a lot of a lot of patience a lot of listening a lot of you know i'm here for you without um perhaps being too or seemingly too smothering to the um to to the person that's going through that because i think particularly those those first few months first year two years can be really delicate and really hard for that person themselves to navigate their diagnosis let alone articulate what that means um to their family um even if maybe they're talking to their friends but I think sometimes sharing something so personal and how it's making you feel with your parents feels feels also quite quite awkward um but it's yeah I mean if 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 it helps to redirect her in our direction we'd be happy to have a chat with her as well Michael but um yeah hopefully we can build some more resources to help uh, those in a similar similar situation Oh, thank you, Charlie. Hello. I'm, I'm, when I was thinking of listening to your story, I, I was listening to, you know, Steph was talking about how, you know, she was siloed. We all understand that siloed. And then you have these, these um, an autoimmune disease that, that, that again would compound that silo, that, that, that loneliness, I guess, that, that, the fact that now you're restricted probably just to your home and and that must I, I I'm sitting here gobsmacked. I can't get the words out to just think about what what that must be like. So for 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 you to just turn that around and go, well I want to give back, I just I'm gonna shut up in a minute because I can feel the emotion <laughs> welling up. I think in some ways when you are stripped of everything that you know about yourself, your body, what's going to happen in the future, what's happened in the past. You reach a point of being so low and I can't, I can't explain how low I have been in the past. I cannot tell you the depth I have experienced. I really can't. And um, that 
crawling out of that is hard and learning to think this is my life now and but what do I do with that you know I'm I was mid-30s it I couldn't I couldn't just ignore it I couldn't pretend it would go away I was in hospital half the time I couldn't talk I I had to spend a lot of time with myself and I had to really get to a point where I could accept my external reality and think, right, okay, so if this is what it is, this is what it is. Um, I've always been extremely mentally strong. I've had enormous challenges in my life. I was born blind in one eye. I'm Asian, I'm female. I was brought up in a sexist hierarchical society. I'm a minority and minority of a minority of a minority of a minority. I have been that the whole of my life. So I'm used to fighting for myself. I stood up to my parents, all my peers, the girls my age went into arranged marriages when they were 17, 21. I fought against that. I went to university. I had, I, I got a degree. I had a career. So I'm used to fighting. I'm used to being on my own saying this is what I want and I'm not going to accept what you're giving me so for me when I was told I had my senior gravis I was like oh I can deal with this I've dealt with this and I've dealt with that and I've dealt with the other what can this do to me <laughs> and of course it did a hell of a lot more than I could ever have imagined and and so I went through all the physical degradation being unable to look after myself having other people do things for myself that I never thought I would have to accept except maybe when I was in my 90s and you know so I had to accept that so when you are faced with an impossible situation you have to deal with it you don't have a choice you know it's like you're strong because that's all you are there is no other option you you don't crawl into a corner and die that's the only other option so you fight it, you deal with it, and you 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 live through it, and and the emotional stress of every single relapse, the heartache that caused every single time my body was overpowered, that and the mental challenges. I I I, I just cannot express that to you, but you get through them, you survive them. And you, you look back and you think, but I got through that. I got through today. And you wake up the next morning and you don't know what the challenge is going to be. You don't know if you're going to be in a hospital bed or you're going to sleep in your own bed. And you think, my challenge today is tonight I'm going to sleep in my own bed. I'm not going to be in hospital. I'm going to get through this day. And, of course, many times I failed. But you accept failure. Failure is part of life. Failure doesn't matter. In fact, nothing that actually happens matters. In any way, it doesn't matter how bad life gets, doesn't matter how good life gets, it is what it is, and it's your life. So, you know, you deal with it. So it's really not um a case of um it's hard for other people to understand and accept it because they can't imagine living through that. But you don't have to. So why should you? I, I don't expect other people to understand me. I don't expect other people to care or engage. It just is. People know what they know. 
Well, I know. Yeah, I wish I didn't know it. I'd love that level of ignorance. I really would, honestly. But I can't. I can't hide from that. But what I can do is make that experience meaningful. And what I can do is I can talk to someone else who's given this diagnosis and think, my God, what am I going to do? Am I going to die? Am I? And some of us do die, you know. Before treatment, there was a 20, 25% chance, chance of death with treatment. So since the 1970s, the chance of death is only 3 to 5%. That's higher than dying from COVID. So when everybody was sitting in their doors because of COVID, I was like, welcome to my world. <laughs> this is where it's like. I always have to be careful. I can't get a cold because I can be in hospital. So, you know, to me, I guess I've reached a level where nothing really matters and so many things I don't care about because they're so unimportant. And I feel that the only answer to any question that worth, is worth, that is worth asking is love. Love others, care for others. And that's kind of what I believe and that's what I think the support is about is being able to share that and you can still be happy you can still enjoy something all right so you may not be able to go out with your mates or you may not be able to drink booze and you can't you know so you know people live with worse things the thing is you get used to it and you um you know, I've learned, I've taught myself loads of things over the years, mixing, crocheting, painting, drawing. I'm currently learning to play the piano and I'm learning Hindi and Spanish languages. So there is so much you can still experience and you can still enjoy. You know, I, I don't believe in labels. I don't believe in tags. I, you know, I am what I am. We're all human beings. The, the rest of it really doesn't matter. So, you know. I've got one tag. Inspirational. <laughs> I think that's an incredible attitude to have. I, I, I just want to just say that I really, really hope that the aim, well, the aim of what we're doing today is to raise awareness of all the other reasons why we are here. It was something we talked about between the three of us um, over the course of a couple of months as to who do we get on who would talk so that we can just explain it's as Jody says it's not just the door didn't couldn't there are so many other doors to this as well um I think that that is the most important thing that we can do um there's a, a friend of mine who is um very dear to me who is childless because of a depression that can actually would end his life and he couldn't bring himself to have be a parent because the risk of that being hereditary. And one of the things he did recently was a little kind of thing about being, um, got it pocket Buddha, because we got the pocket Buddha. And he had a beautiful thing that he said would just be kind, be kind, be kind. And the way he said it, I'm trying to emulate it, I can't, he's just too good a speaker, but it is just that, isn't it? It's just to kind of actually to listen I think as well is so important. We learn it on the podcast, but to listen to what people are saying as well is is an incredibly valuable and important thing. And wow, learning Spanish. Spanish is hard. It's not. It's easy. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of like, I guess I'm trying to learn Cornish on and off because I thought that might be easier. Spanish is hard, but yeah, well done. <laughs> 
well, all the romance languages have so much in common. It's just different endings or beginnings or things That's like true. that. So if you know one, you know, you know, true. them all. Yeah, the verbs, isn't it? <laughs> It's the verbs and the points of view and, the, and that I just thought, oh, no, I can't even get them in English, really, to be fair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. I only remember one word of Spanish. I think it's izquierda, which I think is oh, left. Yeah, left. Left. Oh, God. My God, that's such a oh. sexy word just for left. It's, it's the only great, one that's played in. I like yeah. izquierda. Can you imagine if a izquierda? <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean <laughs> left <laughs> oh wow oh, just, this has just been I could sit here for hours and listen to you always so inspirational I was wondering though so obviously Paola's learning Spanish etc etc but what plans have you got for moving forward what what where where are all you going individually you know what what plans have you got for your support where do you see it all going? Would that be okay to talk about that as well? Who should we go to? We've not heard from you for a little while, Steph. Can I come to you with that one first? Yeah, sure. Um, I have recently found um, a good support group online for um, autoimmune things. Um, and I found that a lot of people in that particular community actually have lupus, um, which is amazing. I'm like, oh my gosh. You get it too. You 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 have the thing. You know what that's like. Um, so there's there's people on there with other autoimmune diseases. Of course, we find that um, a lot of autoimmune stuff overlaps. There's a lot of similarities. So it's a good place to just kind of discuss all things autoimmune. Um, and we certainly we're there for each other. And it's a very raw, candid space where we can talk about you know. I um, can't see any light at the end of the tunnel today. I've, I've lost everything. I'm facing the horrors of this. Um, I can't move. I'm bedbound or I'm housebound, whatever it might be. And I think that's, for me going forward, it's so important to have that kind of support where you can be absolutely candid and not feel like you have to um, filter what you say and you don't have to protect the other person or coach them in how they have to respond or tell them how to support where well, there's just this kind of implicit understanding you can be free to be yourself and you don't have to spend any energy coaching them you can just sit in silence or they might respond with something else or they might help distract you or send you cat photos or whatever it might be that's really helpful <laughs> so that's really important for me um, I'm going to continue writing um, so my next book is actually called Surviving Chronic Illness. That's going to be <laughs> um, a really, uh, probably the most vulnerable book I've written yet. Um, that's going to be glaringly honest about what it's like to be, as you said, Paolo, stripped of everything. Um, that phrase stood out to me. I was like, yeah, I, I really relate to that. Um, and I'm going to keep writing music and putting songs out there and um, music again is it's a really um, non-judgmental space with music you can um, there, there's even times like I love words obviously but there's times when I just sit and play because sometimes with grief both for childlessness and for for illness um, sometimes you reach a place where you just run out of words like there aren't any more words there's no other way to explain this I've unpacked it to death <laughs> I've reached saturation point there's no prayers left there's no there's no words there's no questions it's just blah. and so music is a safe place to just express yourself and have an outlet without having to find 
language for it. So I think that's going to be helpful for me going forward as well. Before we jump on to the others, Steph, I listened to your song Angel at My Keyboard the other day. Oh, yes. And, yep. uh, and I, I need to tell you this, that it resonated with me so much because of the 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 image that I've always sort of carried in my head is 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 my is my boy coming to see me for to seek my counsel. You know, I need to talk to your dad. And so that's why that song resonated with me. And um it actually so for me it's a little that 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 image is is quite melancholic for me mm. in some ways, but your mm. song's not. And so it actually really it 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 gave me a massive paradigm shift when I was listening to it, and um, still reflected over it. Wow. You can see that you can probably hear the emotion in me right now, but I wanted to tell you that. Wow, not quite sure how where it's going, but I will let you know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. I. Um, again, you put this stuff out there and you hope it resonates with people, but you never really know if anyone's going to listen to it or like it or whatever. Um, but thank you for saying so because the song for me, like, it, it was an image that came to my mind one day very starkly and out of the blue and I, I felt physically in pain when the image hit me of, of this little girl at my keyboard and I was teaching her to play. You know, So that was one of my hopes for legacy in having a daughter. And the song is kind of bittersweet in a way, like it's got the it's got the sadness and the sorrow in there, but I also wanted to convey the beauty of that image yeah. as well and how it it transported me to a completely different place. Um, and that's what grief can do, of course. But, yeah, there's this idea that grief is always sad and sometimes yeah. grief is kind of there's a, there's a sweetness and there's a, yeah. a stillness and a grace in that as well. Um, Michael, I really appreciate your feedback. Thank you so much for telling me that that's what came across to you. I'm, I'm so thrilled. Well, thank you for composing it. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that, Steph. Um, it sounds like, you got, well, I'm looking forward to the new book then. It sounds like it's going to be really interesting and a really good support for people that are, have gone through chronic illness as well. So something mm. else that people can sort of reach out for perhaps when they're not ready to talk to people, but they want to hear a voice that gets it. Amazing. Mm, and hopefully um, a good encouragement for Christians as well. There's often these, you know, there's myths in society about, well, if you just try hard enough, you can overcome anything. And sometimes you just really can't. <laughs> sometimes your body goes, yeah, we're not doing that. No. <laughs> no, I don't care what plans you had. No, that's not going to happen. And I think... In the, the Christian circles I travel in, a lot of Christians sometimes need to hear that as well, just that reality check of, you know, as, as wonderful as God is, sometimes he doesn't intervene. Sometimes he doesn't heal your illness or he doesn't give you children and sometimes he doesn't tell you why either. He doesn't give you answers. So I'm really hoping these books can just reassure a lot of people who've been down that path of mystery of not knowing where on earth this is going um, but still hanging on, still surviving somehow. I, th I think a lot of people in the, the Christian faith might resonate with that message as well around that, you know, uh, where they fit within their community, their mm. faith community. Mm. Uh, wow. Sounds like it's going to mm. pack a punch. <laughs>
<laughs> vulnerable hopefully <laughs> supportive but yeah yeah supportive yeah. but actually packs a little yeah. bit of punch too I yeah like <laughs> why not <laughs> thank you for that Steph um who would like to speak next about where they're going what their plans are who's got um, I'm happy to, to go so yeah, go for it um yeah I, I think I think I I was I was reflecting a bit on this whilst uh while Steph was talking and just just thinking uh you know in my in my early 30s where I when I kind of started uh into advocacy I think I, I spent such a long time thinking about a future that uh I thought I uh well that I did want but that was seemingly un, unreachable uh, unreachable for many reasons and I think I I spent such a lot of time expelling energy on that that I, I really I, I really came to not live in in the present as much as I as I wanted to so I think that's really something I've learned over the last few years and something I, I want to continue is actually focusing on uh, on happiness in general and joy and you know speaking to, to Paolo's point about just really enjoying life for what what it is and um through the good and the bad I think is something that's that definitely kind of resonates with with me and where where I see my my journey going I'm actually getting married next year so that's very exciting for me um and uh and and also travel um I think the there are uh, the the advantage that my um my fiance and I have we live in Norway we're both Brits living in Norway um and it feels like we're now in a in a new a new chapter of our lives to to explore and and I think that's something that I'm really excited about what that brings for us in in the future um but whilst also from the kind of advocacy and MRKH side just just bringing different perspectives to to the group um continuing to engage with people at all ages and stages of their of their journey we just uh, launched a, a youth program for the younger MRKHs uh, just a few weeks ago um and and then building other resources and and support materials and just seeing how that evolves so, I mean I'm I'm not sure I necessarily have a you know a five-year plan for that as such but I think it's going to be really interesting to see how how that evolves as as time goes on and um you know being community run means of course we're listening to what the community needs as well so I think travel writing um I used to write a lot um that's kind of how I got into advocacy I started writing a blog for my own um catharsis and 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 I admit that's kind of slipped a little bit over the last few years life and busyness has kind of got in the way but I'd I'd love to get back to doing that it was a really a pleasurable part of my my spare time was 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 writing so I'd, I'd love to get back into to doing more of those can't promise to write a book although I have always wished to do one so I might, I might be messaging you Steph for some tips and tricks on on that <laughs> um but yeah I think there's lots of yeah lots of interesting and fun things I think that I I see for, for myself in in the future and definitely with a focus on things that bring happiness and joy it's uh there's too much time we waste on things that stress and upset us and yeah I, I completely agree with Paolo's point on that we have to enjoy as much as we can I love that where where can people find the support group if they're looking for you we will share it but whereabouts could they find yeah, it so it's mrkhconnect.org uh we're also on uh, all the social medias as at mrkhconnect so that's mrkhconnect um and and we have uh, an online community just for the mrkh community um within our website we also have forums we have lots of other resources as well 
um, and then across social media sharing various different things from uh, people's experiences to um, the podcast when it comes out we'll of course be sharing um, and various other kind of resources that will be of interest to the community. Fabulous so something for everyone then pretty much. We hope so yes. Fantastic thank you Charlie. Um, and Steph, obviously, we'll share your details as well. But would you like to share where they can find you if they're looking for your books and what have you? Yeah, absolutely. All my books and blogs and music are in one place on my website. So that's stephpenny.com.au. Um, Steph is S-T-E-P-H. Penny is P-E-N-N-Y because everyone asks me. So <laughs> there you go, .com.au. Um, my books, um, both the singledom and the childlessness one, are also available at Kurong, which is an Australia-based um, Christian bookstore. So you can order through them. And, of course, the advantage of ordering through them is you can buy a whole bunch of other pretty things as well while you're at it. Um, my book, uh, Childlessness, is also available as an e-book. Um, and I think I sent you guys the digital link for that so people can access that on Amazon, um, Barnes Noble, Apple Books, all those sorts of places. Um, you can also, through Ingram Spark, you can go to your local bookstore, um, most places in the world, and say, can you order in Steph Penny's book, please? And they'll order you a hard copy. So there you go. Um, and my email, my contact details are on my website as well. Um, yeah, feel free to contact me directly. So that's, there you go. Thank you, Steph. And finally, Paolo, if we could come to you. All right. So when people talk to me about plans, I don't make plans. I've spent years stuck not being able to move forward a single day. So, no, I don't make plans. My only plan is to get through the day. There are things I obviously wish for. I build a lot of slack into my schedule because my condition is one by definition fluctuates, which means some days I don't function very much at all and other days, I function perfectly fine. I have probably about 40% of the energy that a normal person has on my best day. So that kind of uh, sets a baseline in terms of my expectations. Obviously, I had to revise those down significantly. Um, and I've had numerous other medical issues over the last 20 odd years. Like the latest one is severe arthritis. And I'm probably going to be having foot surgery in the next six months. And, um, my knees are shot, so that will pass. So anyway, so there's lots of other things that I have to take balance. But on the being engaged with other people front, which is what I like to do, is say, um, I launched that uh, Chronic Survivors Childless Warriors, or oh, is that the wrong way around? Yeah, Chronic Survivors Childless Warriors, last year, last November. So I obviously like to engage that, and my hopes for that is to, give people a safe environment in which they can talk about the challenges they've had and they can share them in a community of women who have experienced similar challenges and um, not feel that they have to explain um, what they've experienced and all the rest of it. So that to grow that community and really to build um, depth in terms of the connection. So. Going forward, we're never going to be able to leave this community. We're always going to be stuck with our medical conditions. And chronic conditions love company. If you have one, you inevitably acquire others over the years, we all know. <laughs> so 
if I can do that and I can give these women that that hug, that comfort, that friendship, then that I hope will sustain them and me through our declining years. We, I mean, no one is promised tomorrow. So I don't think about what's going to happen tomorrow. Tomorrow can take care of itself. Today is the youngest I'm going to be. It's the best I'm going to be. So let's not worry about tomorrow. Let's just focus on um, making other people happy, making myself happy, and trying to make my life as easy as possible in terms of minimal stress and minimal aggravation. I, I have very strong boundaries. I don't engage wherever I feel it's not right for me. I've dipped in and out of many groups over the years. So as long as I feel I'm needed, I will contribute and be involved as soon as I feel there are enough people here now that can carry the mantle on and we'll develop it forward. I'll move on to the next thing and help them. I, for many years, I was involved in my senior groups and I, you know, I supported mm -hmm. that a lot. And I've seen how that's grown and, you know, there's loads of people there now who do that. So I've been perfectly happy to step back from that the last sort of few years. And of course, I have to balance it with my relapses and things like that. So it's, I don't have plans. I want to get through today. <laughs> ask me tomorrow. <laughs> you know. I was going to you, ask. You, oh, you, can, you can't have plans when your life no. is unpredictable. So no. you have to embrace it. You can't fight it. So living in the present is really important. Where do, where do people find your Childless Warrior group? Okay, so that's a Facebook group, um, Chronic Survivors Childless Warriors, and um, I can send you the link afterwards. I've been meaning to try and publicise it more, but as always, I'm constantly balancing my energy with sort of what needs to be done. And my first priority, obviously, is to manage my health, and then everything else has to come further down the list. And it's a case of, um, at the moment, because of my hand, I'm right-handed. It, been a quite a challenge so I've uh, asked a few ladies and they step forward and you know they'll they'll sort of monitor things monitor and manage things I am involved in other groups as well like um the non-religious child is not my choice and child's not my choice uh, two or three other groups and I run uh, my senior group diet and my senior so you know there is there are various things that I get involved with but it's only on a case-by-case -case basis when I have time and energy to be perfectly honest uh, wow you use your 40% very well then you're 40% of energy <laughs> you're working you. miracles with that 40% <laughs> amazing oh well thank you it, we will share the group if you want us to if you yeah. rather if, if it's too much boundaries just let us know but we'll share it no that's fine I would like to do that I thought this would be a good chance for the people to hear wow. about us and hopefully you know for more women to feel that there's a place that they can come to where they will be understood I love that. Yeah. I, I, I think lots of our listeners who are affected by these issues are going to be drawn to all three of you. I think you've got such unique, inspiring stories that actually people are going to be drawn to you and want to be involved with your organisations and your books because you've got three very strong individual voices and they're going to resonate it if they share that, those stories with you. So thank you so much for allowing us to, to share that with you. It's been amazing. Thank you very much. You. I've just spent an hour learning so very much. I, I feel educated, more educated than I was an hour ago. Thank you for the privilege and honour of listening to your stories and for sharing them with us. Thank you.
and, and I'm still gobsmacked. So what what everything that Baron Lee said, double that because I'm just I'm, I'm in awe. I'm in awe of all three of you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. We hope you found Charlie, Paolo and Steph as inspiring as we did. And if you want to find out more about our podcast or you have a burning topic we have not covered, please reach out to us as we'd like to be as inclusive and diverse as possible. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and we also have a YouTube channel. And of course, at our website, www.thefullstoppod.com. And here you can sign up to our listeners list where you can keep up to date with what's going on in our world. And if you want to donate to our work, you can do that there too. We'd also appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on the app you're listening to us on. Apparently, the algorithm loves this and then makes us more visible on searches. And the more of our community, we will reach. And personally, we love getting your feedback. So please reach out to us if you feel the need to. And as always... It's important for us to let you know you are not alone. Mm. I've been dying to speak to all of you for such a long time as well. Um, Stephanie, <laughs> you're, you're such a cheer on Twitter. We're just kind of like, I we go off and throw in little kind of worlds of chat sometimes. So it's really nice to actually speak to you as a real person here on the screen. Um, and one day, maybe in real life, I, I hope that one day I'll get to Australia. Uh, in which case, um, you are definitely someone I want to meet. Well, apparently she's only just up the road from me, so, you know, you could do oh, both of us. I time. know. <laughs> I know. Just up the road in Australia is slightly different to just yeah. in the UK. <laughs> what? Yeah, I've heard that. that. <laughs> Formal for us. <laughs> <laughs>